Good to see everybody on this Sunday morning. I think this is officially the muggiest Sunday morning we've had since we've uh, been outside. My uh, my paper is uh, nice and wet, and it hasn't seen any moisture except the humidity. So my name's Daniel. I am one of the pastors here at Aletheia Church, and it is good to see each and every one of you, especially some of you students who have now come back home. Yes, you're back home here, not where you were, all right? So... I am going to continue what is part two of my mini-series on the law of God. We're going to be in 1 Timothy in the fall, and we've titled that book, Instructions to a Young Church. And in chapter one, we're going to come to this phrase where Paul says we need to be able to use the law of God lawfully. And we said many people don't know um, how to use the law lawfully, so we're going to give you two weeks that set up that passage so we have a bigger and better understanding of what Paul is instructing Timothy. So two weeks ago, when I preached part one of this message, I told you seven reasons why we don't love the law of God. And number one is because it's foreign to our ears. I simply stated, you can't love what you don't know. Point number two was we don't like being told what we can and cannot do. That one's pretty self-explanatory. Number three, we don't like what it reflects about us. That when we look into the law of God and we see where it points out our shortcomings and our failings, we want to avoid it because we don't like what we see when we look in the mirror of the law. Number Point number four, why we don't love the law of God is because we've had a bad experience because of another person. Probably at some point in your life, especially if you grew up in or around the church, someone used the law of God as a weapon against you to point out your sin and to tell you just how wrong or how bad you were in that moment, and it caused a deep emotional reaction in you that you didn't like. Point number five is that we have been taught that to obey the law is legalism. I define legalism simply as the attempt by one person to justify themselves before God strictly through their obedience. To say, God, look at my good deeds. These are the reason you should let me into heaven. But the law is not necessarily legalism. For in the law of God, we are told to love. And no one would argue with the commandment that we ought as human beings to love one another. So the command to love is not legalism, yet the command to love is found in the law. Point number six, why we don't love the law of God is because we've been told that we are not under law, but under grace. And though that is true, it is often misapplied. And the illustration I used was that we, before we become followers of Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses, the Bible tells us. And we can imagine ourselves a dead corpse laying six feet under the ground with all of the weight of the earth upon us and being dead and not being able to move, then there's surely nothing we can do to get out from under the weight of this earth, out from under the weight of the law. But God in his mercy resurrects us from the dead and makes us alive. He puts his spirit inside of us. But yet when we become followers of Jesus and we have this new life, the law becomes that firm place that we can put our feet so that we could walk along the narrow way that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 7. And lastly, I said the reason we don't love the law of God is because we are sinners in need of great grace. 
to look into the perfect law of God and to examine our own lives causes us to admit just how deeply we have sinned against God and just how much we need grace and mercy. And that is a hard thing for human beings to admit. So today, I want to flip the script and move from why we don't love the law of God to why we should love the law of God. And as Myra so wonderfully read for us, the answer is found in Psalm 1 today. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Reason number one, why we should love the law of God is so that we can be happy. Now you might be saying to yourself, I do not equate the law of God with being happy. Never have. Daniel, you're going to have to convince me this morning. Plus, nowhere in this psalm does it mention the word happy. Actually, it does. You just don't happen to know the meaning of the word. The word blessed here, or blessed, not bless your heart, is to be happy. It is actually defined as being supremely happy or being supremely fulfilled. It speaks of the happiness, the blessedness, the contentment in the life of the man or woman who is right or straight with God. The righteous man will be a blessed man and a happy man. And this is one of the reasons that when we look into the Word of God, we must put some time and effort into studying the Word of God because Hebrew words are very pregnant with meaning, okay? In, in English, we have about 220,000 root words. In Hebrew, we only have about 8,000 root words. So the lexical meaning and range of a word can be incredibly huge. For example, the word yom in Hebrew, which is translated day and God created the earth in six days, right? And on the seventh day, he rested. The actual range of that word can be a literal 24-hour period all the way to an indefinite period of time. Now, you think how precise we are in English. They were not that precise. So the words they use often are just so pregnant with meaning. But this word here literally means happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, if you have your thinking cap on this morning of where you may have heard this word blessed in another prominent part of Scripture, where you've heard it emphasized, where you've heard it repeated over and over, you, you might find yourself recalling that the most famous sermon ever preached 
by the most righteous dude who ever walked the planet Earth and happens to be God as well. This is how the Bible records the very first sermon that he ever preached to the multitude on the hillside when in Matthew chapter 5, which is famously known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins his very first, the very first sermon recorded in Scripture this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And if you would just go back and insert into this passage, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Supremely fulfilled are the meek. Supremely fulfilled are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You might find yourself reading this in a different context because that is what the word means. Charles Spurgeon points out, note also with delight that the blessing is in every case in the present tense, a happiness to be now enjoyed and delighted in. It is not blessed shall you be, but blessed you are. That throughout the psalm, the very first psalm, and don't, don't mistake this, that the very first psalm that lays the foundation for the other 149 begins with this word blessed, to be happy, Meditate upon the law of God day and night. Do not miss the very first sermon recorded in Scripture begins with the word blessed. So, because Jesus wants you to be happy and content in this life. There are very few things worse for a testimony than a believer who is just not happy. Jesus was happy. We are instructed to be happy because of what we have now and what we will receive in the future. And I want to say, I think the reason the Psalms begin this way and the reason Jesus' sermon begins this way is because I don't know of any more desire innate in a human life than the desire to be happy. We know that each and every human being that is alive is on a happiness quest. And this was proven several years ago by a group who went out and asked parents, what is the number one desire that you have for your child? And when you can go out to a, a large swath of humanity and you can ask them that question and unprovoked and unprompted, 85% of them immediately from their mouth say is to be happy. You know this is the number one driver of everything that a parent does in this life. All parents desire for their children to be happy. 
Let me say this to the parents here and the future parents here. God has very clearly told you how your children can be happy in this life. And it is by meditating on the law of God day and night and putting into practice what Jesus instructs us in the Sermon on the Mount. Point number two, reason number two, why we should love the law of God is because it reveals the nature of the God we worship. Now, I want you to think for your moment, and I want you to answer this question in your mind, that when you think about the nature of God, what is typically the first thing that you think about? When you imagine God up in the heavens right now, as He is ruling and reigning over the universe, what is His disposition? Is He worried? Is He frantic? Is He angry? Is he sad? Is he aloof? Is he just letting mankind do its own thing and the world run its course? Is he a perpetual hippie who is all about peace and love in some sentimental, sappy way? Or is he happy? When's the last time, if ever, that you imagine God and you're like, man, I bet God is incredibly happy. But did you know the Bible actually describes God as being incredibly happy? And we're going to be there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, at the end of that passage. Because Paul says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That same word, that Psalm 1, that same word in Jesus' sermon and the Sermon on the Mount is used to describe God as He rules and reigns over the universe. One commentator says, it describes that joy which has its secret within itself, that joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained, that joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. How often do you think about God being a happy God. The reason we should look into the law of God, and I know in my first sermon I limited it to the Ten Commandments, but here I want to expand upon the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and for a moment, I want you to see the heart of God, maybe in a way you've never seen Him before, in a story that has very powerfully touched me and impacted me over the last several weeks. My mentor and I, we are currently handwriting out the book of Deuteronomy, and we are going through it chapter by chapter every week. And in the book of Deuteronomy, which means Deutero to Namas, what we talked about the other week, law, second, is the second telling of the law. Moses is recapping what happened in the early part of Israelite history. And he goes on to give them further instruction as he is about to enter into the presence of God. And in the opening chapter, he reminds them about their exodus from Egypt. He reminds them of how powerfully God rescued them, a people that had been enslaved in brutal slavery under the Egyptian pharaohs for 430 years. God raises up a man and rescues them in a mighty, miraculous, powerful way. 
and he leads them away from Egypt across the the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, sorry, and then he leads them with the cloud by day and the pillar by night. And he brings them up to the edge of the promise and everything has been, hey, I am taking you to this good and great and wonderful place where you will have your own homes, where you will build lives and you will see your children grow up. And they come up to the edge of the promised land and he says, now it's go and it's time to go and take the land. And the Israelites, they send 12 spies to check it out. And they come back with this, this giant bounty of fruit. And they're like, wow, the fruit and the produce and everything there is so big and so amazing. But so are the people that live there. They are so big and so amazing. We don't know if this is a good idea. Oh God, why did you bring us out of Egypt only to see us get slaughtered by this people? In a very short amount of time, in that moment, the people of Israel chose fear over faith. And because they chose fear over faith, it came with a great consequence. God says to them, because you have chosen not to trust in me and not to believe in me, you will not be allowed to enter into the promised land. So therefore, you will wander in the desert. And what we normally focus on in this story is the 40 years, right? That for 40 years, God made them to wander in the desert. And it seems like a very harsh consequence for one moment of disobedience. God, why would you make them wander for 40 years for one act of disobedience? And as I sat and I thought about this story over the last several weeks, something new popped into my mind. And, and it's greatly inspired me. See, in that moment, God could have just smote the Israelites, right? Just wiped them out. You, you were bad. You did wrong. But no, what did he choose to do? He chooses to let them live out their life. Now, there's a consequence to their life. But even though they're in the desert for 40 years, the, the heart and the nature of God is this, that for 40 years, he feeds them every single meal. They don't have to go out and hunt because every day he provides manna for them. And when they whine and complain about that, that they wanted meat, he provides quail from them. The birds just fly in every day. They take the birds and then they eat. And so for 40 years, the Bible says God fed them every meal, which that seems like a pretty good deal to me, right? And neither their clothes or their shoes ever wore out while wandering in the wilderness. Now, to me, that speaks incredibly to the nature of God, of his love and his care for his people. Though there is a consequence for their sin, and sometimes a grave consequence, God's heart and nature toward his people is to love them and to care for them. But then I had one further thought. Why 40 years? Because none of those who were there and were above the age of accountability were able to enter into the promised land. But the children who were alive and the children who were to be born were going to enter into the promised land. And I realized something I had never thought of. It took that long for God to build faith into those children to overcome the disobedience of their parents. They needed to see the same faithfulness of God. They needed to see the same mighty, miraculous power that their parents had seen in Egypt 
in order to be able to overcome fear and to step out in faith into the land that God had called them to. So see, the consequence, the consequence was harsh from one perspective. But if you see through it, God is doing everything according to his nature and his character. And so, and so many times we've been taught that the Old Testament God is this mean, angry God, and the New Testament God is this God of love. Well, the Bible tells us that God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the foundation of who God is is established for us in the first five books of Scripture. How happy does it make you that you know that when you sin against God, though there may be a consequence, God is still right there with you. God does not abandon you. He will still take care of you. That He is still for you. And that He will even teach your children lessons when you sin against Him. For me, this has been an incredible comfort. Reason number three why we should love the law of God is because it is a firm place to put our feet. I used the illustration a few weeks ago about C.S. Lewis wondering how David could love the law of God. It was something that perplexed him as a believer. But in his book, Reflection on the Psalms, in chapter 6, where this illustration comes from, he said he finally figured it out one day when he was walking through a muddy field because he had taken a shortcut and it actually took him longer to get there because the ground was so squishy. And he realized that once his foot finally hit firm ground, that this is what the law of God was like. It was a firm place to put his feet for walking out this life. And in doing some more research, I came across a quote from Kevin DeYoung in a book he wrote about 15 years ago, and he says this, Isn't it strange, C.S. Lewis wondered, that the law would be the psalmist's delight? Respect or reverence we might understand, but delight? Who delights in law and why? C.S. Lewis explains, Their delight in the law is a delight in having touched firmness, like the pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in muddy fields. Back to the young, and I love the phrasing here. In our world of perpetual squishitude, why offer people more of what they already have? Vague spirituality, uncertainty, and borderline interpretive relativism. Why not offer them something hard and old like the law in which we delight and dare to say and believe, thus says the Lord? Where I want to make brief application this morning within this topic of having a firm place to foot, put our feet is that of identity. I believe it is this subject that is the cause of so much unhappiness in the world today. I think it's why God and the authors inspired by the Holy Spirit who wrote down Scripture incessantly and graciously remind us of who we are. Over and over and over in the Old Testament, when Israel is unhappy, when they are sinning, when they are walking away, away from God, He reminds them, you are my called people. You are my chosen people. 
You are my children. God reminds them of their identity over and over and over. The Apostle Paul, over 150 times in his 13 letters, uses the phrase in some form or fashion, in Christ. Scholars have said, if you want to sum up all of Paul's writings in two words, it is those two words, in Christ. Paul does more to remind us of our identity than anything else that he speaks about. Peter reminds us that we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I don't know if there is anything more powerful in the human life that influences our daily moment-by-moment living than how we embrace our identity and who God says that we are. I love the law for this reason. I love the fact that the law defines for me who I am. It defines for me what it is to be a male. It defines for me what it is for me to be a husband. It defines for me what I am to do as a father. I don't have to go worrying and looking for, man, what should I do? Because the law has so clearly identified for me who I am and what I am to do. It clearly gives me instruction, Paul pulling out of the law, that I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I don't have to ask myself, what does this look like? I have a picture and a savior to look at and go, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to love. Now, is it always easy to make the right choice and apply it? No, but that's where Romans 12, 1 and 2 comes in, right? That we can put this into practice testing what the will of God is. God understands there's going to be this figuring out for us, but this firm foundation is there as God builds our life for us, as we build these lives that God has given to us. But let me also say to you why why you should love the law of God, because I thought about your identity. And let me say to you, many of you are going to experience this one day, if you haven't experienced all already, that you're going to realize how much your identity is tied up in the job and the career that you have. And the reason is because ever since you were born, people have asked you, so what are you going to be when you grow up? What are you going to do when you grow up? And you have tried to find this thing. And the world has told you, you will find deep inherent meaning in the things that you do. And one day that idol is going to come crashing down for you because you will realize there is no job, there is no career, there is no status that will ever give you the satisfaction and fulfillment that you are looking for from your job. Now, it doesn't mean you can't find meaning in your job, but I would tell you this. The scripture says that the primary thing that we are to do with our work is to bring meaning to our work because God has created work rather than trying to suck meaning from our work. And because we are trying to draw out all this meaning from our work, we have staked our identity on it. And one day that house of cards will come crashing down. You hear the term midlife crisis? You got about 15 years before it hits. If you don't want to find yourself in debt, buying a Corvette with money you don't have, or a beach home that you don't need, Figure this out now. But I'm going to take this to its farthest place. And I really debated whether I wanted to step in hot water this morning. But I figured, hey, it's hot outside. We might as well 
keep the temperature up, okay? Now, I want to preface what I'm about to say um, that I am not trying to be hateful or mean or cruel in any way, but I, I, want you to, I want you to see and understand something so that you see it, but also that you can possibly help someone in the future in discussions as we interact with the world around us. I think, what, I think the place that we see this more than anywhere else so prevalent is in what we would call the identity of those who are transgender. I did some reading and some research. I, I cannot find a people group in our country that has a higher rate of attempted suicide than this group. 49% of all transgender males have attempted suicide. One out of every two. And we have to ask ourselves why. And the numbers were almost as high for transgender females. Why do they attempt suicide at a rate that is so significantly higher than everyone else? And see, the, the, the problem for us as human beings comes in this. When there are certain foundational truths and principles that God has said, this is true, this is fact, this is right, and you cannot get away from it. And in his word at the very beginning, God says he created them male and female. And as Theo said last week in Psalm 139, he has formed our inmost parts. He formed you in the womb of the mother. God decided what sex you would be, what you would look like. You, you don't have power over any of those things. Every one of those things was decided by God. And to kick against this most foundational part of our being causes incredible unhappiness incredible dissatisfaction, and incredible depression. And the lie that humanity has bought into, and it's not just in this area, because I want you to, you're going to hear this message all around you in our day. You have been told it is up to you to discover, to determine, to discern, and to decide who you are. Scripture does not tell you that. Scripture says God has already determined and decided those things. And so when you place the foundation of your life upon the bedrock of God's word, it allows you to walk in a way unhindered and unentangled by trying to figure out your identity. When in so many places, God has clearly identified for you exactly who you are. Reason number four why we should love the law of God is because it is the foundation for New Testament ethics. Think about the story in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus immediately lists off commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Honor your mother and father. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. Dude's like, no problem, Jesus, I got all those. He goes, all right, you only lack one. Give away everything that you have and come follow me. The dude's like, sorry, not today, Jesus. And in that moment, it says Jesus was actually sad because that young man walked away from what was truly life. Now, in that moment, Jesus is not actually telling him you earn salvation by keeping the law. He's pointing out this great area of sin in the young man that he refused to acknowledge. But I want to point out to you in that story, it's very convenient 
that when someone asks Jesus, what should I be doing in this life? He immediately goes to the law of how you should live out and have and conduct yourself in this life. But so many people will say to us, well, that, that's before the cross, right? That's before the death, burial, and resurrection. Well, let me ask you this question. Then why does Paul, when he wants to give a summary of what it means to be a Christian living in obedience to God, he looks to the Ten Commandments regularly? In Romans 13, verses 8 and 9, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, much like Jesus did, that the Ten Commandments are the way for God's people to love one another. When we love, we fulfill the commandments. And when we obey the commandments, we are fulfilling the law of love. When you read the ethics list in Colossians 3, it's based on the Ten Commandments. When you read the ethics list in 1 Corinthians 6, it's based on the Ten Commandments. When we read the ethics list in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it's based on the Ten Commandments. We need to understand that the Old Testament law is the foundation for New Testament ethics. And the last reason I will give you, and let me tell you, I stopped at 20 reasons, okay? Um, I could have gone on many more, and I had to pair 20 down to five. That's usually the problem for the preacher. It's not, what am I going to say? It's like, what am I not going to say on a Sunday morning? The last reason why we should love the law of God that I will give you this morning is for freedom. Now, I want to tell you that the biblical definition of freedom, much to your disappointment, is not doing whatever you want. Freedom is enjoying the benefits of doing what we should. Freedom is enjoying the benefits of doing what we should. In his book on the Ten Commandments, Kevin DeYoung gives this brilliant comparison and illustration. He says, you think it's burdensome to have 10 commandments? Do you know how many laws are in the United States of America? And the answer is no one knows. There are 20,000 laws on gun ownership alone. In 2010, 40,000 laws were added to the books in the United States of America. And in 2008, a House committee asked the Congressional Research Service to calculate the number of criminal offenses in federal law. This is just federal law. And after five years of spending the American taxpayers' dollars doing the research full-time with an incredibly large team, here is the answer they came up with, and I quote, we lack the manpower and resources to answer such a question. We are ruled by innumerable laws because we refuse to be ruled by 10. 
Do not be surprised that our freedoms will continue to be taken away every day in this country. This is not a political statement. This is just the fact of the matter, that the more we disobey the ten, the tighter the clamps of law try to come around us to restrain us from conduct that is not based on the firm foundation of God's Word. And I can give you just an easy example by which you will be able to grasp this concept. And it's the example of driving a car. I mean, I, I don't know about you, and, and in my younger age, like I didn't really appreciate road trips that much. But as I've gotten older and I've had the freedom to drive from Seattle to Florida, from Florida to New York City, from Seattle down to LA, all the way to Texas, completely unhindered. No one bothers me. No one says anything to me. I can roll down the window. I can turn the music on in the car and I can have a great and glorious and wonderful time in complete freedom doing whatever I want to within the confinements of somewhat obeying the spirit of the law when it comes to the speed limit, right? But you experience the same thing this morning. The reason you have the freedom to get into a car and to come here and nobody bothers you or messes with you is because you obeyed the stop signs, mostly. You obeyed the red lights. You obeyed the speed limit. You have this freedom because, according to our definition, you didn't just do whatever you wanted to. If you decided to get a big truck and just go through people's yards and that was the best way to get here, the cops would arrest you and throw you in jail. You don't have that kind of freedom. But our definition of freedom is enjoying the benefits of doing what we should greatly meets this. And let me just say, the next time you ever think about complaining about traffic or driving here, just do me a favor, hop a plane ticket to Africa or India. Okay, I've lived in Africa. I lived in a city of 5 million people. There would be three lanes painted on the road to go one way. They somehow managed to get six lanes of cars in those three lanes. Do you know how nerve-wracking it was to get there? Do you know how long it took to get places with a bunch of people with no driver's license who were just packing in all the space? It was not near the fun time that we have here in America driving a car. And I thought that was bad until I went to Delhi, India one time on a trip. And there were 25 million people in that city. And they, they somehow managed that in those same three lanes to get 12 lanes of cars in that roadway, plus scooters, plus mopeds. And we had the occasional person who just came the exact wrong way down the lane, driving, was no fun whatsoever. And it took an immense amount of time to get there because they did not obey the laws and the rules as they were properly designed. Their view on life is that space is not to be maintained as Americans see it, but space is something to be filled. That's why the African proverb on the bus or on the Indian train is there's always room for one more. Americans say, no, there's not. Social distancing is something we've been preparing for in the movie theaters our entire life. 
We too often think of the Ten Commandments as constraining us, as if God's ways will keep us in servitude and from realizing our dreams and reaching our potential. We forget that in the law, when God lays out the law to the Israelites, He says, I lay before you life and death. Choose this day which way you will go. That is how the law concludes. You can choose my commandments and choose life, or you can choose to not follow my commandments and choose death. And that's why you have to understand in the context that when Jesus says, I have come so they may have life and have it abundantly, he's not just saying so that you can do whatever you want to. In Jesus' mind, there's a direct correlation to the law. But how often when you've heard that phrase or someone's told it to you, you said someone else, have you connected it to the law of God, which is the exact context by which Jesus would be making this statement. Because to have life would be connected to the law of God. It's why Jesus says, I came to give you true freedom. It's why 1 John 5.3 tells us that the commandments of God are not burdensome. It's why Jesus says in John 14 and John 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will close with a plea to non-believers and to believers as well. If you are here and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, just realize that there is no good, there is no amount of good you could ever do to make yourself right with God and to justify yourself to where God is going to say with you, say to you one day on that day of judgment, you were good enough, and so therefore I will allow you into heaven. But what God has said to you and what God has said to the entire world is that I have provided a way. I was willing to send my own son to put flesh on him so that he could die in your place, so that he would perfectly fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, so that you don't have to do anything to earn your salvation, which you could never do. The only thing you must do is put your faith in him. The invitation to you today and every day is to say to God, I I'm tired of trying to do this my way. I'm trying to earn my salvation. I'm, trying to, I'm tired of trying to find happiness in every other source except you, God. God, I, I surrender my heart and my life to you, and I believe and trust in Jesus that he is the only way by which man may be saved. Lord God, save me from my sins. And the Bible says to you, all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. But let me also say this to you believers. We are not immune from believing and embracing the lie that we have to earn our salvation. Just this last week, a major study came out that 54% of all Christians in America believe the primary way by which a person gets to heaven is through their own good works. I don't for a moment think that they're not talking about Alapia Church. We've done such a good discipling you guys that you, none of you guys believe that. 
But yet we know that to be true. 54% of all American Christians believe that a person still gets to heaven by their works. This is why us pastors say, though the stat, though, though this many number of people say they're Christian, there's not that many Christians. Because if you believe that that is how you get to heaven, you have not yet put your faith in Jesus. Faith plus works does not get you salvation. Faith in Christ alone. It is not the amount of your faith. It is the object of your faith. If Jesus Christ is the sole object of your faith to why you will get into heaven, then one day God will usher you into his eternal kingdom. But if there's any other thing that you believe can save you, you do not understand the glorious gospel of the happy God that Paul preaches about over and over and over. So I would encourage you to continually let the law drive you to Christ. Look into the law. Embrace your shortcomings so that you can see how good and great and glorious the grace of God is as it has been given to you as a gift from God alone.